All right, welcome back to the Crimson Flag Podcast, where we bring you a class-conscious analysis of historic and current events which are pertinent to the international working class movement. All right, so today is the third and final interview with Professor of Politics with East China Normal University in Shanghai, Joseph Gregory Mahoney. All right, so in the first half of the interview, we give some of our concluding thoughts as far as the cultural revolution. And in the second half of the interview, we go deeper into dialectical and historical materialism, as this is the method of analysis that that Professor Mahoney has been using to study these events. So without further ado, here is our third and final part of our discussion on the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. All right, well, I'm back here with part three of my interview with Dr. Joseph Gregory Mahoney. We're going to be closing out our thoughts on the Cultural Revolution, the Great Leap Forward, and some of the larger um, aims at the time. So I guess just to begin here, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions before you close out. My first question, I know that some of our listeners have been wanting to understand, you know, your argument about the Cultural Revolution being uh, being an event where Mao can better get the country to a place where it can later reform and open up. So here's my question. So a central part of the Cultural Revolution is the aim to remove those representatives of bourgeois thought from within the party, keeping China from heading down the quote-unquote capitalist road. Because of this, many people see the later reform and opening up as and later opening up as a sort of victory of the capitalist rotors who made it out of the Cultural Revolution. So can you explain why Mao attacked the capitalist rotors before beginning opening up himself? Well, in, in the previous uh, session, I, I was discussing the idea that, you know, as a matter of tactics, he had to, to knock down the urban right before he risked disappointing the urban left with um, um, opening up um, uh, to the United States. Now, my I would not argue by necessity that Mao knew um, uh, in 65 or 66 um, without a doubt that he would open to one or the other country but I think it was, my, my argument is that he uh, had an increasing uh, understanding that it would be necessary to make peace with one and draw close to one because they were failing to, cl to, to close the technology gap. And so, um, so I think what you see Mao uh, doing as a strategic thinker that he's positioning um, for having to change course and he's going to have to open to one or the other. I do think, however, that he has a preference towards the United States, and that this preference uh, starts to to e emerge um, in 1956, and it's relatively solid by 59. Um, and so, in the early 1960s, when we see these these massive uh, uh, polemics against the Soviet Union coming out of uh, 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 Beijing, um, that the rupture is absolutely clear. And, and I gave, I think, a, a lot of um, arguments uh, uh, or, or, or uh, um, evidence to support this, that, that Mao um, had seen the Soviets as a, the Soviets as a, um, 
starting in the 1960s as a more immediate threat, um, um, uh, that the Soviet Union would also um, fail over the long term. Uh, this was an assessment that, that Mao had expressed and he, he, he said why. And, and, um, and I think uh, if we uh, look at the historical record, uh, Mao's um, uh, projection uh, carries weight. In other words, um, the Soviet Union did stagnate because it did fail to um, ultimately to find the right mix between revolution and discipline in order to continue to advance um, uh, uh, Soviet interest on, on the global stage. So, uh, so I think that that I think that when we enter the Cultural Revolution, it is a strategic. Um, uh, it's part of a, a, an overall strategic vision that that sees the necessity of opening up to one of the superpowers um, with Mao's likely preference being the United States. And so it is in this um, uh, context that I think that regardless of who he opens up to, whether the Soviet Union or uh, the U.S., it's going to be political risky, uh, uh, politically risky for him. And um, you see this in 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 uh, Chinese leaders, right? Um, before, and we see it again and again and again. Um, we, one could say we see it in the in the Hundred Flowers campaign. Um, we see it um, when when Xi Jinping takes power. The first thing he does is he goes out and he begins to discipline uh, critics of the party, uh, people who are are taking pot shots at the party. Why? Because he's going to launch a massive anti-corruption campaign. In other words, he's going to be revealing all the dirt and all the corruption. I was sort of bloodletting the party itself, right? Exposing the party and making the party more vulnerable um, to criticism. And so in order to, to go through this um, tremendous uh, self-disciplining um, uh, action, we must first knock down those people who will exploit that and, and um, take advantage of it and um, um, put us at greater risk. So uh, I think that, that uh, Mao Zedong, um, this is always a sort of calculation we see in Mao uh, as a strategic thinker. Uh, and I think that, that when he launches the Cultural Revolution, he's got, um, firstly, the objective of taking class struggle in China to its end point mm. as a, um, as a uh, tactic for um, emerging as a nation that can reach a threshold where it can then elevate class struggle to the international level. Now, the, 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 the key point here is, is that despite all the, the, the rhetoric that we generally have about um, you know, Mao Zedong and internationalism, uh, which we, we, I think, sometimes romantically link to the old uh, Marxist and Leninist notions of internationalism. Uh, 
uh, I don't think they're the, the same thing. And, 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 and rather, I think that, that we have to look at, at Mao as having solved the national problem, right? In other words, the, the Qing dynasty was unable to um, um, uh, sustain um, and then reestablish sovereignty. Um, uh, and neither neither was the the Guomindang, the nationalist. And this is the biggest problem, right? Um, this is the thing that um, people uh, are are most worried about. Can we survive and preserve uh, China? And I think that that if you want uh, a, a specific um, um, value that is at the root of party legitimacy uh, in Mao's time, but also today. It's whether or not the party can uh, make a compelling argument that it has been a responsible steward of the national interest, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, did you, did you um, save China? Did you um, um, uh, put China on a development path? Did you, um, so all of these are, all of these are more important even than theoretical notions of, of the, the, the peasantry versus the landlords or the proletariat versus the bourgeoisie. So in this sense, I think the class struggle is something that Mao Zedong is using in China in order to uh, knock down these old social institutions that had been obstacles to modern nationhood, okay. that had been that had been um, uh, holding China in uh, old relations of production, an old mode of production that was, uh, and, and an old. Um, uh, um, uh, incapacity to to emerge as a modern nation that would then be capable of preserving itself in a in a world of of uh, competitive nation states. Yeah, so I, I guess I just wonder, you know, when he's making this capitalist rotor claim, I, I don't want to read too much into it or put my own words into it, but could it be that he's arguing that these are people who the end result of their policies could end in a restoration of capitalism in China, a fall of the Communist Party, something like this, just because their ideas and their um, prescriptions wouldn't help this nation building process. Is that kind of like why he's attacking these capitalist rotors? Is that the bigger point that they their, their policies aren't helping build this nation or? Uh, you know, so they're, they're when you're looking at this history, um, there are things that people say in order to uh, mobilize, uh, in order to provoke, in order to um, um, advance your line. Mm -hmm. And there are things that you say because um, um, 
because you have constructed a narrative and you're working within a narrative. Uh, you have concepts, you have terminologies. And um, there's some things that you cannot escape saying. Hmm. My point is, I don't think that that Mao has the same obsession with capitalism that we that we take him uh, at his word for having. And I was, I think, what Mao is most concerned about is um, reestablishing uh, a strong China, um, not. A strong China that's capable of dominating its its you know international fellows, but rather that's capable of taking care of itself. And mm-hmm. so the class struggle is something that is trying to knock down uh, the old landlord culture, uh, the old culture that kept uh, the masses in a uh, position where they were not really national citizens they were not really national subjects they were real they weren't really part of um uh the the nation building project and if you don't have that if you don't have your 70 percent or by some estimates your 90 percent engaged enthusiastically in the nation building project then given given the gap right the, the technology gap that exists given um the the, the conflicts that you already have on the international stage you have no uh, ability to effectively resist, okay? So there are uh, sort of two class struggles at work. One is the class struggle that needs to take place within China in order to uh, create a strong nation um, that could then in turn be better positioned to um, um, engage in class struggle uh, at the international level. And so, um, when we see Mao deploying class struggle, when we see him fixated on uh, capitalist rotors, I think we have to understand what his objective is, right? It's not uh, necessarily uh, an ideological uh, uh, conflict with, with capital, uh, although he's certainly not uh, a friend of capital. It is rather a, a tactic that is aiming to uh, draw the masses into um, uh, modern nationhood so that uh, uh, he can then, I think, uh, uh, position better in 68 and 69 for um, the struggle that he sees coming, uh, the new struggle that he sees coming uh, internationally and the necessity of having to draw close to one of the superpowers, which is gonna be uh, politically difficult. So I think he's managing all of these processes. Okay. Yeah. It it sounds like you're implying like there had to be a class struggle at home in order to get closer to this strong nationhood. And then when you have the strong nationhood, advance that class struggle to the international scene to an extent. Uh, Is that kind of the basis of it for the most part? I think so. And I, and I, and again, I think that this, the, if we go back to the, the notion of antagonistic contradictions that we find in Mao's essay uh, on contradiction published in 1937 um, and, you know, his, his 
this what becomes sort of a um, one of the founding documents of Chinese Marxism, and um, still to this day, um, um, the party uh, going back to Mao's terminology and saying, "Okay, we need to focus on the primary contradiction." Right? There, there are a multitude of contradictions, and some of these are antagonistic, and some of them are are just you know part of life. Uh, but when it comes to uh, the antagonistic contradictions, um, the the type of contradictions that are used to oppress and exploit and to uh, uh, stymie progress, okay, then those are the ones where we need to engage. So, what is what is the primary uh, contradiction in in um, um, you know 1937 or 1949 um um in in 37 it's it's the presence of japan as an imperial power um uh slaughtering millions of chinese um it's the the fact that uh, the future of china is very much in doubt uh it's the fact that uh the guomindang which is uh by far a larger and more powerful political organization than the communists is aligned with uh, relations of production and uh, um, uh, including landlords and, and the old warlords uh, in a way that prevent the majority of Chinese from becoming part of the national project. Um, and so in order for uh, uh, us to deal um, more effectively with uh, the uh, external uh, aggression, which, by the way, the, the the whole reason for the Guomindang, um, the whole justification for the Guomindang was was originally to to solve the national problem, right? Because the Qing were unable to do this, and then the Guomindang also failed to do this, um, and so now you know there there are two contradictions at work with the Communist Party during the Civil War. We've got uh, the antagonistic contradiction uh, that exists. Um, because of the political alignment of the Kuomintang with these um, uh, forces that are preventing China from progressing. Um, and then we have also uh, these external powers who are exploiting uh, China's uh, weakness. Um, so, you know, we need to resolve um, the the problem of, of these uh, these um, systems are, you know, the, the, the landlord versus the peasantry, the, uh, the bourgeoisie versus the, the, the proletariat, although it's a very small uh, part of China at that point. We need to resolve these things um, and, uh, you know, obviously resolve them in the form of, of the civil war between the communists and the Kuomintang in order to solve the national question, in order to reestablish sovereignty in order to build up the country, to create more social justice, to bring socialism, to eliminate poverty, uh, and to uh, resist this external aggression that aims to uh, enslave us or exploit us in one form or another. Okay, right, right. And I'm glad you were talking about class struggle there. Um, 
because this this is obviously a big piece of the cultural revolution he's trying to mobilize the masses and it's a more acute form of class struggle a couple of things about it um you know i think your point on class struggle is important because it might help tie in better the cultural revolution to the reform and opening up um because th that is something that i can see is like a similar trend which some people may disagree with because we know that when the opening and um, reform time came that China said, you know, countries of, you know, other countries, the, the class struggle is your business in your country. We're not going to be like the common turn and do that sort of thing. But at the same time, we see opportunities for advancing class struggle through the reform and opening up. Um, so I, I guess I, I think it's interesting because I know that Mao held class struggle continues under socialism, which a lot of communists agree with now for the most part, um, that wasn't so under the Soviet Union. They felt like they solved a lot of those contradictions and there wasn't as much as a class struggle under socialism. Um, so, uh, you know, I guess, yeah, is that, do you think that is maybe one of the things that could link the cultural revolution to the later opening up? Um, I'm not, I don't want to make it sound like, you know, Mao had this plan the whole time. You know, I think he, like you insinuated, he was trying to figure out who do I side with here, Soviet Union or the U.S. But at the same time, um, you know, the class struggle was able to be brought to that international stage. So I think that's interesting. But I guess what I want to hear from you is um, China at the same time, like I mentioned, they use less class struggle type rhetoric once they open up to the world. Um, so, I mean, some people may see that as a contradiction, but like you said, rhetoric is used in very specific ways in politics. Um, so, I mean, I would say there's not a contradiction there between, you know, the reform and opening up, but I don't know. Do you have any particular thought from what I was talking about there? Yeah, let me let me develop a few themes here. And, and the first thing is, um, you know, to, to go back to the earlier uh, session, um, as, I, as I said, Mao says that the, Cultural Revolution comes to an end in 1968. Right. And I think that for the most part, class struggle as a mobilizing tactic, as a national transformation tactic, largely comes to a, a, an end at that point. There, there are a few little struggles and a few little things that, that are sort of legacy events that, that, um, that happened that that happened afterwards, but for the most part, it it ends in in sixty eight, and um, and so we jump from from sixty eight uh, to seventy four, right? And in seventy four, uh, Deng Xiaoping is sent by Mao Zedong uh, to give a speech at the United Nations, and. Uh, Mao can't go because uh, he's, you know, suffering from Parkinson's, we believe, um, and um, uh, but uh, by most accounts, he writes the speech that Deng uh, gives, and um, the the speech introduces what uh, to an international audience what becomes known as the three world theory, mm -hmm. and I think if you read the th the three world theory, and, and I think by the way. Uh, not enough attention is is given to this to this uh, concept because I think that it remains very important to the Chinese uh, uh, Communist Party uh, to this day. 
Uh, I think uh, it was very important uh, to Dung throughout his term in power. Um, but he, he goes to, to New York and gives this speech. Um, and I think that what we see is that the, the three world theory is taking the concept of class struggle and elevating it to that of um, uh, the struggle of, of, um, of more developed uh, nations that have been dominating um, and exploiting uh, less developed nations. And um, I, I don't think there's any other way to, to interpret uh, the three world theory. Um, so, uh, you know, a couple of interesting points here, right? The first is, um, you know, too often we think of a radical rupture between uh, Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping. Uh, we think uh, uh, that, that in some way uh, Deng is, is uh, you know, enemy number one or enemy number two uh, after Lu Xiaoqi. Uh, that he's uh, the capitalist rotor, um, but in fact, you know, Dung is 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 in and out of power, and he's he's trusted enough by Mao to go to New York and to give this speech. Um, and uh, to go back, and uh, I think I, I made this point in the earlier talk uh, that you know we see Mao repeatedly describing uh, Deng Xiaoping in. Um, uh, to foreign visitors and, and others who, who record these conversations, that Dung is the one who uh, will remain, that Dung will be the, 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 really the, the, the person who inherits um, uh, the top position after, after um, the first generation dies. And so I think this is, this, this leads us to, to really question, you know, the whole rhetoric uh, about, you know, what is the meaning of class struggle and um, the charge of the capitalist rotor and, you know, this idea that, that Deng Xiaoping represents a great betrayal. Um, um, rather, it seems that um, Mao is setting the table. He's setting the table for the the reforms that Deng Xiaoping will introduce, and he's he's actually I, I think we have to argue um, he's ensuring that Deng is preserved. You know, if Deng was really um, um, posing the threat that we think that um, um, that this anti-capitalist rhetoric um, uh, conveys, that he would have fallen. He would have he would have died. Uh, mm -hmm. during the during the cultural revolution um, and to, to support this uh, argument I think one of the things that we have to uh, contend with is and this is <laughs> this this came up in a in a lecture I was giving last night um, to a, a school of Marxism in in China a doctoral seminar and I said, you know, and, and it made some people angry, um, but I think the the about half the, the the people agree with me. Um, so I don't think it's that radical. But I think we have to what we have to recognize as Marxists is that um, 
it is really Mao Zedong who paves the nationalist road in, in China. It is really Mao Zedong who creates um, a modern nation, who lays that foundation. And um, it's really Mao who then opens China up and begins to uh, actively engage in positive, but also in competitive ways, um, the, the, the nation state system. Now, if we go back to the old Marxist way of thinking, uh, Marx uh, makes it very clear that nationalism and capitalism are based on the same type of logic. They're based on the same type of values. In fact, we find uh, the nation as, is really only a modern concept, right? It's something that arrives, that we, we see the sort of the proto-nation, the proto-modern nation emerging in England during the reign of Henry VIII, you know, circa 1500, right? And we also see at that same time, uh, the beginnings of uh, capitalism and Protestantism, like all these isms, right? Uh, the, the rise of what we later uh, call, you know, ego subjectivity on both the individual and the national level. Um, and then what uh, uh, we will name um, uh, following uh, Descartes, um, cogito subjectivity, right? This radicalization of um, the law of non-contradiction that uh, follows in the wake of uh, Thomas Aquinas's uh, Summa Theologica published in 1274, which many uh, epistemologists would argue uh, is what uh, creates uh, sort of this uh, intellectual opening um, for what becomes known as the Renaissance and then the Enlightenment and modern, uh, modernity and the Industrial Age and all of these things. So all of this is, is a movement that is happening um, um, uh, and, and it is based on this same uh, uh, type of thinking. What we, what, what we could say then is that by paving the nationalist road, this road in this global capitalist system, because you know, even the Soviet Union is state capitalist at this point, right? So whether it's state capitalism or, or merely uh, something in a, in, a, in, a, in a private sphere, it's a global capitalist system. That China is, is through Mao is already advancing down the road almost by uh, necessity. Right, he's laying the foundation. He's he's establishing this logic. He's establishing uh, uh, China in in terms of its capacity to be a producer, consumer, and contributor to the to the global economy. Now, this is not to say that he valorizes capitalism or that he sees it uh, teleologically as the desired endpoint of human development or Chinese development, but rather that it is um, um, something that is. Um, um, transitional, right? And, and Marx himself makes this point, right? Uh, we will go through capitalism because capitalism allows us to um, um, uh, quickly advance technological development, to quickly accumulate uh, technology and capital stocks, but also through this experience to transform the consciousness of people that will uh, also be necessary for advancing uh, uh, society um, mm -hmm. uh, through socialism. So uh, I see all of these as, as one thing leading uh, to the other. And um, um, 
to, to a significant extent that Mao is cognizant of this movement and um, positioning for it. Um, um, not necessarily happily or um, normatively, but through um, um, historical material necessity. Yeah, I, I'm glad you used the word necessity there. I was about to say um, a lot of Marxism, I, this is where we differ than the anarchists. We say, well, looking through the dialectical historical materialist method, there are certain things that are a necessity. For example, most Marxists recognize that there needs to be a state of some form after a revolutionary movement. Um, now, I think most Marxists would agree that a state, it would be ideal if we lived in a world at the moment where we didn't need a state. That's the goal of communism, right? Um, but this building of a strong nation state that you're talking about, that too kind of sounds like a historical necessity for the conditions of China in order to um, consolidate a, a further revolution, you know, towards socialism and communism. Um, but, but yeah, I think that was a really good point. Um, I guess like my, my final question that I wanted to pose to you when I was listening back and kind of taking in your argument, I was, it, it brought something to my mind. I know that this is a common theme that you hear among people these days, um, who talk about these issues. They, there's something called the late Mao theory. And you see it amongst the ultra leftists and sometimes the right opportunist type communists. Um, so, for example, the ultra leftists, they'll say in Mao's later years, he began slipping in some areas. For example, um, reaching out to Nixon, opening up to the United States, they'll say that was a mistake of his old age. Um, right, kind of right opportunist communists, they tend to say the Cultural Revolution, yeah, it was this ultra leftist adventure. And well, Mao's a great guy, but he was just slipping in his old age. Um, can you talk about, you know, where that kind of where that idea comes from? And of course, um, I think everything you presented kind of hints that that is not true for the most part. Well, I think I think that there's this tendency and, and certainly the, the 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 party would would often um, lead itself lead others to believe that this was the case but one of the one of the key lessons you have to understand i think about the party is that no man is bigger than the party and that was true in mao's time and it's true today um, um, uh, xi jinping will stay in power uh, uh, as long as uh, uh, a, a majority of the party um, um, is convinced, um, and, and really a majority of the Chinese people, because the party's sensitive to this, uh, that he's representing, um, um, uh, the best, uh, path forward. And, um, so, you know, and, and I think the thing you have to remember is that even though the party is transformed during the Cultural Revolution. It is the party that Mao built. In other words, he built a party that was bigger than himself. And even though he has uh, an outsized voice in it, um, um, this is um, um, 
uh, it's not him alone, okay? And this is, this is true even in his later years. And as he doesn't just have a bunch of puppets who um, in, in the standing committee who are uh, doing whatever he wants, okay? Uh, things just don't work that way. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the other point is, um, um, is as, as um, you see the, the right wing um, and, and especially people in, in the West, um, generally speaking, I'm not talking about the, the, the leftist romantics who, who, um, who have these sort of romantic notions attached to Mao Zedong. Uh, I find him completely unromantic, honestly. Um, but um, the in, in sort of this rightist, just to, to, to shorthand, um, this rightist interpretation, Mao is always evil, right? Communism is always evil. Um, and um, whatever he did um, uh, was wrong. Um, and, and then you have, um, you know, sort of the ultra left who, who, you know, wants to defend um, the Great Leap. They want, in, in terms of, um, in, in very narrow terms, right? Um, and they want to defend um, uh, the Cultural Revolution now in, in, in very romantic terms. And uh, some, of, some of these people are my friends. I, one of them, I, I won't name by name, but um, uh, <laughs> just to give you a, 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 an insight into sort of his, his, his worldview, uh, and he was, he was someone who was a sent down youth uh, during the CR. And, and, um, um, but he, he um, at, at, a, at a conference at, at Peking University at Beida uh, several years ago, he presented a paper where he was talking about how great uh, North Korea uh, is today. Mm -hmm. And um, um, this prompted uh, derision and, um, uh, from the audience. And the audience was made up of primarily Chinese uh, um, uh, academics, but there was a, a, um, a number of, of foreigners in there as well. And um, uh, they were very disrespectful to him. And, and uh, I spoke up in the group and, and criticized them uh, for being uh, disrespectful in an academic forum. Um, because the, the real point of his, his conversation, uh, I think, was not to uh, really talk about uh, what was great about North Korea, but to talk um, indirectly about uh, what was bad about China um, with respect to reform and opening up mm. and the gross inequality uh, that had um, begun to emerge uh, because of uh, uh, the market economy um, and, uh, and including what we had seen in, in, in gender, the rise of gender inequality uh, over the course of reform and opening up. And so, you know, there was this, um, the audience, um, didn't want to engage 
that rather they really wanted to dodge that point and simply um, mock him um, for talking about North Korea. And for whatever reason, he didn't feel comfortable uh, directly criticizing China. Uh, and so his, his tactic was to say something positive about someone else. Okay. Mm. Um, but I, I know him well, and, and he's a friend, um, but I don't agree with a lot of what he says. I don't really have a position on North Korea. I don't really know much about it, but, uh, my, my sense is, uh, uh, I would rather not live there. Uh, and I would rather not embrace that type of, uh, political system or economy. But, uh, that said, uh, he makes this argument that you often hear, um, on the ultra left or the ultra Maoist left that, that it was Mao's intention that, uh, he would be succeeded by his estranged wife, uh, Jiang Qing, who was, you know, uh, uh, the leader of the gang of four. Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, that the historical record on this is, is really quite clear. Um, that, uh, that the estrangement between Mao and his wife um, uh, uh, actually increases throughout uh, the CR. And um, that in their private correspondence, he's often warning her that she's going to fall after he passes um, because she doesn't really understand what she's doing. Um, and, uh, you know, then this raises the question. So, so who did, if, if, if not Jiang Qing, then who did Mao envision succeeding him? Right. And, uh, Wa Guofeng, uh, argues, uh, initially and, and somewhat persuasively that he was Mao's intended successor. Um, but I also think that this was not the case. Um, I think, uh, uh, Hua's number one uh, qualification is that he was from uh, Hunan, the same province as Mao Zedong. And if you have ever listened to recordings of Mao speaking, he has a heavy uh, Hunanese accent. Uh, um, um, the, the Hunan Hua, the, the Hunan dialect, is is uh, um, uh, uh, unintelligible to, to many people uh, who aren't familiar with it. Um, and even when Mao was speaking Mandarin, uh, you could still hear it. Uh, I remember years ago, uh, for some reason, there were a lot of um, taxi drivers in Beijing. This is no longer the case, but there were a lot of, like in the in the 90s and 2000s, uh, early 2000s, there were a lot of taxi drivers who were working in Beijing who were originally from uh, Hunan. And, you know, I would get into a taxi and uh, I would say, um, and you could tell that they were that they were originally from rural areas, in terms of the way. Um, if you're familiar enough with, with yeah. Beijing style and culture and whatnot, and so I would I would say I would ask them, you know, what their hometown was, and they would always, like I, I always knew what the answer would be. It was it was always Fulan, right? Because F U L A N. This was the the, the Hunanese um, way of saying uh, uh, Hunan. And um, so I think that Hua Guofeng's chief characteristic was that uh, as Mao was suffering and, and in decline from what we believe to, to be Parkinson's, although this has never been officially confirmed by, by the Communist Party of China, 
that his his voice was uh, harder and harder to understand, realizing that it was already tinged um, with the Hunan accent to begin with. And uh, so I think that Hua Guofeng was this useful proxy because increasingly Mao wasn't going to meetings, but, but uh, Hua was going on his behalf. But it wasn't just that Hua Guofeng was, was Hunanese and, and had a better ear for understanding Mao. Uh, but I think that his, his, his even bigger qualification is that he wasn't uh, so politically capable that Mao did not see him as a threat to Mao's power, you know, that Mao could use him. And in fact, I think this is what's so sort of terminally uh, limiting about Hua Guofeng, uh, which, which Deng Xiaoping mocks um, with uh, two whatevers uh, criticism, right? When uh, Hua Guofeng says that, you know, we're gonna say whatever Mao said and do whatever Mao did, um, mm -hmm. that Hua has no sort of political genius beyond um, repeating. And, and trying to do in some sort of narrow way what was done in the past. Um, but rather Mao is uh, 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 a student of uh, capability. He, he is a man of rare talent and genius and he recognizes that in others. Um, and uh, I think he, he recognized that in, in Deng Xiaoping and he cultivated it uh, and he protected it and he preserved it. And as he said many, many times, again and again to, to foreign visitors, Dung is the one who will be here after the rest of us are gone. Um, so I, I see that everything that we, that we see actually transpiring during the CR actually conforms to a logic, actually conforms to a, a type of progress, a type of moving from the endpoint of uh, the usefulness of class struggle as a national organization and, and, and uh, liberation tool, uh, reaching uh, sort of an endpoint to that so that one could then more effectively advance uh, uh, the same at the international level. And to keep in mind that Deng Xiaoping is the one who in, in 74 will go to the UN and give the speech that, that lays out you know, the three world theory, uh, basically the, this idea of the class struggle at the international level. Um, and, uh, I think what's what's so interesting, of course, is that you know after uh, Deng takes power and, and uh, um, so he's he's really starting to take power in '78, although Hua Guofeng is still technically in charge. Um, but you see um, that when the first volume of uh, Deng Xiaoping's selective works come out, and then the second and the third, there's nothing in there from the, the 66 to 76 period. In other words, the, the, the party almost hides uh, Deng's proactive involvement um, and I think feeds this myth that exists that, um, that, that, that uh, Deng Xiaoping represents a radical rupture um, um, with, with Mao and, and I, I don't think he does, I think I think that uh, whether anybody likes it or not, and that includes Mao and Deng themselves, if we follow the, the a sort of a dialectical materialist and historical materialist analysis, which has been the whole point of, mm. of, my, of my talk, um, one thing leads to the other. Mao's nation building project leads into 
the market society leads into opening up, right? But this doesn't normatively say that anyone likes it or that anyone sees it as the desired endpoint. Right. Yeah, I, I know just to address that there real quick, I, I believe on one of our past videos, um, we got something of a critical comment um, where they said, okay, your argument sounds convincing, but they said, does that mean that you're falling into a great man type theory of history? But when I listen to your argument, I think it's kind of clear. You're, you're not saying that Mao was planning everything and he had this 10 point plan just written out from the beginning of the cultural revolution. I think in our first um, episode, you did say he was setting the table, but he didn't know who would come. I think that's kind of a good analogy. And I, I think if anything, that's not a historical deterministic point of view. Um, instead, you're saying that he's looking at these contradictions, trying to find a resolution um, as he's moving forward. Um, but would you say that's that's probably a more fair, accurate um, description of what you're arguing, at least? Yeah, I think so. I think that um, I think that the the key quote um, from from Marx on this point is, uh, and I, I think it comes from the 18th Brumaire, uh, if I recall correctly, um, that men make history, but never just as they please. Yeah. Right. That um, um, that you have to struggle, um, but but you know, Marx intends this insight or this this you know sort of aphorism uh, to to carry uh, several points. I mean, the first is the obvious that you know we wish we could. Uh, simply make things the way we want, but um, that's impossible to do, right? Mm -hmm. But the, the other side of it is um, what we wish to be true right now is not necessarily the best thing because, uh, and this is one of the reasons that uh, Marx is very, um, you know, except in his private notebooks, he very rarely um, uh, discusses what communism will be like. Um, he, he sometimes fantasizes about it in his notebooks, but um, in his published uh, materials, he, he, he is very vague um, uh, to the point that, you know, Lenin, when, he, when Lenin is trying to um, figure out how to build, <laughs> you know, communism, He's he's left with reading the critique of the Gotha program, where he's you know he's trying to like read uh, Marx's criticisms backward. Okay, so if Marx is criticizing this, then um, maybe that suggests that he valued um, that maybe that there's an implicit value. Okay, so by criticizing this one thing, maybe he's actually revealing what he what he values. But Marx's point was was that. Um, that that socialism and communism will be built by people who are more advanced than he is and, and more advanced in in two senses of the word right and these two senses that will the, these two aspects that will go uh hand in hand uh uh together one is 
the material world will be transformed and more advanced in ways that I, sitting in my position now, cannot and should not imagine, mm -hmm. right? It's impossible to imagine, but, but as a materialist, why would I sit here and tell you what the advanced technology of the future is gonna be and then, and then tell you how you're gonna use that to construct socialism, right? And then secondly, that our consciousness, that our critical consciousness, right, will be more advanced. And the way we understand, the way we uh, recognize and create justice will be superior to what Marx himself is capable. And if you, if you need um, sort of any, uh, as a Marxist today, if you need any compelling evidence of that, you know, we, we can look back and see uh, that Marx uh, himself was, was, was um, you know, far inferior to Engels as, um, in terms of uh, feminism. Uh, in fact, you know, Marx, uh, aside from his, from his um, very positive and, and, and um, cultivating relationship with his, his uh, daughter, um, it, it wouldn't be wrong to call him a misogynist, right? Um, and and uh, similarly, um, you know, there's there's some evidence that um, he did not have the most progressive position on uh, homosexuality, right? But as a Marxist today, um, uh, uh, with with a more advanced uh, social consciousness, uh, we understand, and, and even Mao Zedong understood. There's no socialism without women's liberation, and I think increasingly yeah. uh, we understand that there's no socialism without uh, uh, um, uh, sexual liberation, uh, not sexual liberation in the sense that you know we all become victims of of um, you know sexual fetishism uh, as a form of commodity fetishism, but rather that um, um, that the categories of sex are not oppressive categories that are used to uh, stymie and limit certain populations um, in ways that run contrary to to um, real human being and and, and uh, um, you know, a scientific understanding of of the human experience. Yeah, yeah, right, right. I, I think that's a I think that's a pretty solid point um, about history. I mean, yeah, we you know as communists we have these goals, but I think that's where a lot of people get distracted because. We have these higher aims, but it's a matter of reaching them and what we'll have to go through to get there. So that is important. But um, I know that you had some comments that you wanted to throw out, like just to kind of like wrap up the, the series and everything. Um, was there any specific points that you wanted to make before we finish this out here or? Yeah, I think there, there, there are three or four points and I'll, I'll try to, I don't want to develop them at length because uh, uh, it would end up being too academic. And I've, I've written about them in other places. And if people want to, you know, Google that or Baidu it, uh, that's fine. Uh, some of the publications are in Chinese. Um, I, I don't, I can't remember if I mentioned, maybe you can remind me that uh, I had published a paper in one of the party journals, uh, party affiliated journals, um, I can't remember if the paper came out in 2018 or 2019, um, but I wrote it in 2018, uh, the 200th anniversary of, of Marx's birth. Um, and it was, um, the paper was uh, Marxism's three big gifts 
to China. Did I mention this before? Um, no, you have not. Yeah, okay. So, so in that paper, I said that the three big gifts, because we had all these events in, in 2018 uh, commemorating the, the 200th uh, anniversary of Marx's birth in, in China. Uh, and so um, I was invited to give a lot of talks and one of these um, then got published. Um, and I said that the three big um, contributions to China, first, uh, dialectical materialism. You know, how could China uh, uh, take uh, this, this sort of yin-yang thought and um, uh, build this epistemological bridge to uh, uh, materialism, but also, you know, the linear analytical side uh, that was not very well developed, or at least not as well developed in China as it was in the West, and that was instrumental in constructing things like nationalism and industrialism and, and let's face it, capitalism. Right. I mean, and this is what you know Marx and is is saying. You know, uh, it's it's the absence in part. You know, when, when Marx discovers the materialist dialectic, um, and this is a, a very, this is a very sort of, uh, I'm going to try to, to say this in a very clear way, but uh, if you really want to understand uh, um, the materialist dialectic, um, you go back to the, the afterward to the second German edition where, uh, you know, so many Marxists are familiar with this of, of Capital Volume One, where he's describing his method and he has that very famous phrase where he says, you know, you have to take Hegel and turn him upside down, right? In other words, connect the idea uh, to the ground, right? And, and it was, you know, ground the idea and the material reality. And if we go back and we look at uh, Marx, the early Marx, um, I think that we have this periodization of, of Marxism um, uh, that, that prevails in the West that, that is often a little misguided. We have um, generally uh, two periods, uh, what is known as the early uh, uh, versus the mature. That's a, most... a quick comment. I know that's a common thing amongst Marxist academics. I know that um, sometimes that tends to get ridiculed, but yeah, go ahead. It, it should be ridiculed. Uh, and, you know, uh, and, and one could ridicule me for what I'm about to say, which is at the very least, we should, we should see three periods. Um, um, the, the, uh, there's sort of an early period and then there's, um, um, a transitional period. And then there's kind of like in that transitional period, uh, we can see sort of different things at work. And then there's a third period. Um, but the, the, the first period, uh, the, 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 the most famous work are the philosophic and economic manuscripts of 1844. And there we can see a critical attitude towards Hegel but we can also really see um, 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 a lot of the uh, Hegelian idealism at work, okay? Um, now, the, the, the point that I would make is that even though we have these three distinct periods, they don't necessarily negate. So, you know, when mm -hmm. you see someone like uh, Althusser, Althusser says, you know, um, anything before capital, essentially, you should ignore before capital volume one. Um, 
And I, I totally disagree with this. I yeah. think that you, you can you can see uh, Marx's development and you can see his struggle, and this is informative. But but underneath all of that, you can actually see what he cares about, right? And I think he still cares about these same things. He still he still has these these motives for for social justice that we see in the early text. That's still driving him in the later work. He just doesn't. Um, he's not a, he's not a, uh, as effusive about it. He's more focused on on um, uh, analyzing things in in uh, what he would describe as more scientific ways. So we see, nevertheless, we do see this early period where he has uh, this very strong um, uh, 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 Hegelian idealist um, uh, perspective. And then starting with the theses on Feuerbach, right, which is what, 1845, uh, uh, leading into uh, the German ideology, um, we see this this uh, new appreciation for materialism, right? Where he's really going to start to distinguish himself much more clearly from Hegelian idealism. Okay, and for many, so not not the Althusserian school, which starts with mature Marx at, at Capital Volume One, but um, for <laughs> the other academic Marxists, <clears throat> the thesis on Feuerbach is the starting point of the mature Marx. And this is, this is, I think, really important for them because they want to ensure that the Communist Manifesto is in that mature Marx period. Mm, okay. okay. Yeah, so that's, that's really what they're trying to, to preserve. But, you know, I would say that that this leads them to overvalue um, uh, the German ideology and sort of a deterministic uh, concept of, of of the relationship of consciousness to material reality that I don't think is is really um, that strongly asserted in the the later Marx and I don't think Marx feels like he has to go back and correct the German ideology or that that position because. Uh, that book was never published in Marx's time. And he doesn't have to mm. repudiate a thesis that, that he didn't actually publish. Um, and, and so I think that, you know, this, this leads a lot of Marxists to take this very deterministic view about consciousness as, as being, as coming uh, uh, solely from, um, you know, uh, the, the material economic forces. In fact, someone criticized me of this last night and, and the point is, if that's the case, then how how can you form a critical consciousness? How can you begin to articulate a, a revolutionary praxis if you're not able to conceptualize uh, a theoretical alternative and then begin to work to transform the material reality? You know, in other words, you would end up in a closed loop, and no real progress would be possible. But um, the 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 interesting thing, uh, the interesting criticism, uh, there are two interesting criticisms to make of uh, the Communist Manifesto. Um, the first is uh, one of the most famous lines in the manifesto is um, capitalism uh, creates its own grave diggers. Right. And um, this is, 
you know, I think it was uh, Kohev or, or, or Jean Hippolyte, I can't remember which, which of the two, uh, but both of them were very interested in, in Hegel's relationship to Marx. Um, but this this idea that, that capitalism creates its own grave diggers is, is almost uh, verbatim a, um, a uh, uh, not verbatim, but it's it's conceptually completely faithful to um, uh, the master-slave dialectic in Hegel. Um, mm. So the, Hegel's influence uh, in in uh, the manifesto is still extremely uh, uh, pervasive. Right, and, because Hegel is it because he's arguing that um, the slave master relationship leads to the slave eventually taking over or breaking out of that is that the argument there yes but um um in in the master slave dialectic uh without wanting to slip into a lecture on that yeah although it's a favorite <laughs> it's a favorite <laughs> topic of mine um um what makes the master slave dialectic and this is in the phenomenology of spirit and in the uh oxford uh, edition. It's it's uh, translated as Lord and Bondsman, but in and in, uh, in, in, in usually we refer to it as the Master Slave Dialectic. But in that um, discussion, um, we can see precisely the idealist uh, dialectic at work in Hegel, because what Hegel is describing is the um, dialectic uh dialectical uh development of consciousness okay so um um and uh he's talking about um that the slave has uh sort of a um, um an opportunity because there's a type of double dialectic at work um there's the dialectic of the conflict with the master but then there's the dialectic of the slave who has to struggle with creative work, right? And those by um, struggling to um, um, make the things that the master needs, the slave is actually advancing and developing his consciousness. And this is what allows him to eventually surpass the capacity of the master who doesn't enjoy the same challenges and the same opportunities for growth and become stagnant uh, in his consciousness. Right? And of course, Hegel isn't just talking about, uh, he's, he's, he's talking about, uh, there, there are generally three interpretations. One is um, um, the uh, development of the consciousness or what we call uh, uh, harmonization, that generationally we have um, uh, over time uh, uh, humanity um, rising to uh, higher and higher levels of consciousness, but through a dialectical struggle with the older ways of thinking, right? There's a sort of a generational uh, struggle, uh, new ideas versus the old, moving towards uh, a progressive advance. Um, so that's one sense. The second sense is um, um, the struggle uh, to develop your own consciousness inside your own head. In other words, you have old ideas in your own head and these begin to struggle with new ideas and new insights. And um, 
um, you know, if that uh, struggle is is conducted well, if you're if you're actually moving forward, then uh, you sublate. You, you have uh, um, the old ideas are are transformed, uh, and the new ones become dominant, right? And you know, I think we can all uh, relate to that in terms of our own lived experience that we've sometimes struggled with new concepts and new ideas, and and had to, and, and especially if we're talking about socialist or communist who grew up in the United States, you know, probably you didn't come out of the womb or you probably didn't have parents who, who taught you how to be good communists. You know, that was, that was a struggle uh, to, to reach that point um, where, you, where you embrace that. So, and then the third, the, actually the third interpretation is the, the, the actual struggle between um, um, uh, people who are being oppressed um, and in this sense, uh, you know, it's often uh, said that uh, Hegel's master-slave dialectic was inspired by the Haitian uh, slave revolt. Um, but you know, all of this is 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 really idealism because it's about the development of the consciousness in struggles uh, of itself, in a sense. Okay, mm -hmm. and. Um, um, I think we can still see that 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 uh, influence uh, powerfully in the Communist Manifesto, and then the second the second main uh, uh, critique of the Manifesto is that you know it was it was published in early 1848, ahead of the revolutions of 48, and then the revolutions of 48 all fail, um, and. Um, you know, in many cases, aside from you know some of the unique things that happen in Scandinavia, um, where you have uh, a, a moderated, um, you know, the, the beginnings of, of of Scandinavian socialism uh, are are part of the the settlement that uh, that that is reached um, between uh, competing forces, um, neither one able to to win outright in in, in forty eight. In, in Denmark and Sweden and whatnot. Uh, that's where the roots of, of Scandinavian socialism uh, come from. But in, in the rest of Europe, it fails. And you know where does it get closest? It gets closest in France. And so then uh, Marx uh, uh, then says, okay, I'm gonna study uh, why it failed in France. Uh, and then he begins his historical studies. Um, and then, you know, as he's going through the historical studies, uh, he slowly starts to realize that he needs to put more and more emphasis on uh, it's it's really historical we, we should say historical political his, his focus is on the political why did this form of politics prevail over that form of politics right and this is uh, where he's writing the 18th Brumaire and and um, uh, the other works on on France and he's he's starting to realize that underneath all of this, um, is is the uh, the dominant position of economic relations? Oh, right, right. And so um, that's that's when he's going to start. You know, in the eighteen six late eighteen fifties uh, and then eighteen sixty uh, late eighteen fifties eighteen fifties he starts uh, focusing all of his energy on uh, studying economics. And then in the late 1850s, he starts searching for a method. Like what is the critical method that I'm going to be able to use to organize 
my critique of capital, right? And um, <laughs> it, it, one way to look at it is anyone except Hegel, right? Because he was so disillusioned with Hegel. Um, and the last uh, person that he really flirts with trying to find a method uh, 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 is, is Spinoza. Uh, uh, he spends a long time thinking about Spinoza and how he might derive a critical method from Spinoza. And then he comes back to Hegel, right? And this is, this is the, the key insight that um, what, what Hegel does is Hegel studies, you know, Hegel's provoked by Kant and Kant writes the critique of pure reason. And he says, there's the analytic and the dialectic and in uh, and, and, uh, other works and in, in Kant's uh, lectures on logic, he, he derides dialectics as uh, metaphysical juggling, as the logic of illusion, right? And this analytical sort of linear logic based on uh, Aristotle's law of non-contradiction is logic, right? It is, it is what is sensible and rational. And this provokes Hegel to then um, to, to begin to uh, wonder why is it, uh, you know, is, is Kant right? And he comes to the conclusion that Kant is, is right to uh, criticize the dialectic as it had developed in the West um, because we didn't develop it well. And, and you know, that's when uh, Hegel then gets into this long study of the history of philosophy. And, and he goes all the way back and, you know, he, he basically concludes that there's this huge missing chunk of the history of ideas in the West. Um, and that's related to dialectic. So then he begins to construct, you know, from what's missing from the world of ideas is a dialectical understanding. So he then begins to develop this. And then this, of course, is influential on the early Marx, but then the later Marx, what the later Marx discovers as he's just, as he's studying the material world, right? As he's, as he's studying uh, competitive capitalism, competitive nation state system, is that these systems exist because the dialectic in part has been excluded, has been so marginalized and delegitimized and, and uh, removed from consciousness, right? That this is really the, the history of ideas of the development of, of modern Europe. As a result, the dialectical perspective is completely outside of this, of the prevailing way of thinking and therefore it provides a critical perspective, right? And once we begin to use that critical perspective, we can begin to see the contradictions that capitalism is always trying to hide. We can see the metaphysics uh, that capitalism is trying to posit as scientific fact. Uh, and so in this sense, um, we begin to understand that um, the, the you know, dialectical materialism as it becomes called later, is uh, something that Marx uh, is described as discovering. He, he discovers uh, what happens in the material world when the dialectical perspective is absent, right? And so then when we bring that dialectical perspective to it, we begin to understand something about the material world, how it actually developed and how we can take it further. Gotcha, yeah. So, you know, I think that's interesting because you described it as like three periods um, 
you know, I think it's obvious there are differences in Marx's focus, you know, through these different periods of his life. Um, but I think you're totally right that although there are these differences, they aren't like repudiations of each period. He's not um, totally like getting rid of all his past ideas, even though he's advancing forward in his perspective and stuff. Um, you know, you were talking about like the slave uh, dialectic and such. Um, I guess, you know, I, I'm wondering something because I know later on, you know, Marx's argument, it isn't that because the proletariat are exploited, they are going to have a revolution. You know, like there have been plenty of classes in past societies who have been oppressed in like horrible ways, but that doesn't necessarily lead to revolution. Um, so like, yeah, the development of consciousness is important but also just your situation in your particular time of history. Like, can this class take power? Is, is that where the contradiction is headed? Or are they going to become something different? Um, but is, when you were talking about the slave dialectic there, um, I, I'm trying to kind of grasp, like, like, your meaning. Were you saying, like, Marx later on, like, re, he totally change like his way of viewing this dialectic and such where in the beginning he was kind of following the more hegelian um, tradition well let's make sure we have the right term the master slave hyphenated right. master slave mm -hmm. dialectic um you know this is this is a question that really uh haunts um the the um the early Western Marxist, right? Uh, people like uh, George Lukash, um, uh, especially, um, and his book, History of Class Consciousness, right? Um, because the, the, the question that these, you know, Western Marxists who, who are emerging in Europe, uh, distinct from uh, Soviet Marxism, is why, and this is the, this is the provocation uh, that that comes from Lenin. Why does why does the communist revolution start in Russia? You know, if we're really following Marx, it should have started in um, Germany or something along yeah the the UK or or you know the United States even. And um, the. Um, and, and they're asking this question for two reasons. One, why didn't it? And two, what do we got to do in order to get it moving? Okay. In other words, why, why haven't the workers um, uh, proceeded with, with um, socialism? And, you know, some people would say, well, actually, um, there was an incremental socialism um, through labor parties, through uh, various forms of progressive politics that were uh, alleviating uh, some of the worst excesses of um, capitalism. So it was not so much a revolutionary change, but an evolutionary change. That's one argument. Um, Lenin's argument is uh, that uh, these uh, capitalist nations are at the center of the global system, and they are exploiting uh, the periphery, and this can supplement. So, um, 
you know, in a, in a sort of corporate sense, even workers in the United States and the UK uh, get some sort of benefit from being able to exploit um, uh, workers in other countries, right? Because as the nation benefits, um, as, as the nation is able to assert uh, all sorts of advantages, um, they benefit from these in part, but also um, uh, they benefit from higher security, but they also benefit uh, from being able to purchase low cost goods, right? And we can see this uh, uh, if you need uh, sort of a contemporary example, uh, the majority of products that you buy at Walmart are manufactured uh, overseas, uh, um, most of them in China. And, you know, there are all sorts of estimates that whatever the social cost of Walmart are, and they are quite high in the United States, that workers uh, uh, um, um, uh, get some economic benefit from being able to buy uh, cheap products. Um, um, and that is that cost is being borne uh, substantially by the exploited workers in the countries where those products are being made. Um, so, um, you know, that's, that's another argument, but um, the, the, in, in my view, um, I think Lenin, Lenin's argument is, is more compelling. Um, and I think that, that we're in the midst of a, of a sort of double revolution um, right now um, uh, globally. And um, uh, the revolution, and, and I use that word probably too, too casually, but the, the, the one revolution is, is the rise of Asia, um, um, where we're seeing um, uh, pushing back um, against all, um, still existing systems. I mean, I remember something, something that the French president uh, Macron said uh, when, when Biden went to Europe recently to promote this awkward term, what B3W, build back a better world, um, uh, where, you know, we're gonna, uh, the United States wants to propose this um, as a competitor with China's Belt Road Initiative. And um, um, Macron says, why don't you just reform the international institutions, the World Bank, the IMF, that are continuing to exploit uh, the developing world? Uh, why don't we start with that instead of, of trying to, you know, build a massive system that we can't actually afford and that probably won't succeed to compete with you know, this this development paradigm that that Beijing is is promoting um, you know and, and if we look at the 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 uh, uh, one of the big banks associated with BRI the the Asia um, uh, infrastructure investment bank the AIIB in in Beijing uh, with China as the number one shareholder and the number two shareholder is India. And then, you know, the United States was trying to pressure um, all the European and, and other country, uh, American allies to not join the bank. I think the UK was the first to break and, and join the, the bank. Um, but th the big reason for the AIIB is that the ADB, the Asian Development Bank, which is um, uh, controlled by uh, Japan and the United States, 
uh, was was restricting uh, uh, development projects that favored um, um, uh, uh, development um, uh, that that uh, might in in Asia that might have might have uh, um, put uh, those countries in a better competitive position vis-a-vis -vis Japan or the United States. So we see this, you know, and lots of people talk about the rise of Asia and this, you know, this re, um, this realignment of global power. That's that's one revolution that's ongoing. But the second revolution that's ongoing um, is, you know, what we're seeing uh, somewhat tepidly, uh, but nevertheless, um, in the United States and and perhaps some other developing countries, where um, really one could say since uh, the 1970s, but, but accelerating in the 1980s, where we begin to see a decline in real wages, um, where we see various crises that continuously knock back um, uh, the working class, where the working class uh, loses their savings, their pensions, where their disciplines, where they have to start or they lose their jobs and they have to accept um, uh, discipline. Um, but then, you know, really this accelerating from 2008, uh, where so many lost their their homes, uh, where they lost their pensions. Um, and this then begins to intersect with the opioid crisis. This begins, we begin to see uh, the United States is the only uh, developing, a uh, developed country in the world where um, middle-aged white men are committing suicide at increasing rates. Um, and, you know, Trump comes in and he, he exploits this, right? Uh, yeah. he, he is able to um, exploit it, in fact, in, in, in ways that the, the closest analog would be uh, Bernie Sanders in, in some sense. Um, uh, Anti-free trade, uh, he's, he's really, you know, following this populistic logic. Um, because, uh, and really, it was really only Sanders and, and Trump that were engaging um, people in a, in a, in sort of a deeply meaningful way at that, and yeah. that election. Where, I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, but, but there is a revolution where, and, and, and the, the key point here is that um, we still have American workers who are, uh, uh, enjoying the corporate benefit of being Americans, right? Um, in so much as, you know, for example, um, the power of the U.S. dollar is a supranational currency. You know, keep in mind that last year, the money supply, the, 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 the Treasury increased the money supply by 20% in order to cover the, the mess of COVID, in order to, co to cover... Uh, the economic, what was really uh, the, 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 an economic collapse. And keep in mind in 08, uh, 2008, at the height of the global financial crisis, they simply created digitally a trillion dollars one night, right? Mm -hmm. uh, to to maintain liquidity, to, to prevent the, I mean, fictionally create a trillion dollars uh, so that the system doesn't collapse. If we're looking at this in real terms, the system did collapse. And yeah. You know, and it's been in a slow, you know, it's it's been in a managed collapse. Yeah, like uh, almost like band-aids. Like we're putting band-aids on it, but it's still, the collapse is still happening. 
Oh, the collapse is still happening, and we see we see it uh, manifest in material form in terms of what we saw last year uh, with uh, the the public health, but also economic response, and the trillions of dollars that they're trying to throw into the economy now to to prop it up and keep it going. Um, um, and <laughs> they're not even able, the, the Democrats can't even come to terms on that right now. Um, so I don't know, you know, uh, where that's headed. Um, apparently Trump is licking his chops and thinks that there's going to be some incredible nostalgia for him, uh, for the next run. I think he's delusional. I think, I think the best thing that could happen to Democrats is that Trump runs and divides, um, uh, the party, uh, only his, only the rump, the worst ass end of the Republican party would support him. Um, I think he's done, but, uh, um, uh, and I think all the sequencing we see in Congress uh, for hearings and and uh, uh, the trials that will be advancing in New York will ensure that he's no he's no longer politically viable, uh, which may be a, a tactical error on the Democrats' part if they can't get their own shit together. Mm-hmm. But um, but I, this brings me back to the that we are in the midst of this second revolution, where American workers are no longer enjoying this the, the capacity of the center to exploit the periphery the way it once did yeah. and so in a sense right we're coming back to this to this this future that marx envisioned where you know workers the world over would find that they were confronting uh the same problems and so i think this this creates this this opening this new opening for the for the advancement of class consciousness in places like the United States, um, uh, which is really um, something that uh, you know activists and um, educators and other well-meaning people need to reflect on. You know, sort of the historical moment mm-hmm. of of now, right? I mean, revolutions. And progress don't just happen; they're, they're, not, they're not just predetermined, right? You actually have to go out and struggle, um, and uh, suffer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I have a couple of points that I want to make in response to that. Um, what you're describing generally um, has been termed like the fall of the labor aristocracy. Um, you know, that's a Leninist term. Um, it's what you were describing the workers of the imperial countries gaining these benefits, um, essentially their ruling class helping buy them off um, to keep them from possibly doing a revolution of some sort. Um, I know that even, I was reading a biography of Cecil Rhodes and you know, very famous British colonialist. Um, he has a quote where he said, um, he said, I decided that I would bring the system of imperialism to the UK when I saw the conditions of the working class, which is very weird because his whole argument was, look, the working class in Britain is pretty destitute. They are going to either have a civil war or a revolution or something. So through imperialism, we can create this labor aristocracy and, you know, keep them from doing that. Look, that's a communist kind of theory, but it's very interesting to hear it from a actual imperialists themselves put it that way um but you know what you're talking about america being in this decline 
look, this is a kind of a big um, debate amongst the communist YouTube people, at least. Um, some hold that because there is a labor aristocracy in the Western countries, we are unlikely to see revolutions um, in any way, shape or form. Um, I, I obviously disagree with this. I think that the labor aristocracy can provide that effect on the working class for sure. But I think you hit the nail on the head because the key piece here is, yes, even though we have a labor aristocracy in the West, their privileged position is now threatened. And as communists, you know, we need to really utilize that opportunity because otherwise fascist kind of forces might utilize that opportunity and say, you know, um, with their populist rhetoric, they can get in there. But I, I do think that that is kind of the key, one of the key uh, pieces of our current time period, at least in America, is that this labor aristocracy who is very privileged is not going to be seeing those privileges or that convenience that they so love, you know, in, in their near future, possibly. Um, but yeah, I think, like you said, that does give a lot of opportunity for furthering class struggle in America if communists can um, wake up to this opportunity. Well, the, 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 I think that the, you know, I, I don't like the term labor aristocracy. I, I just stick with the old, the other uh, center versus periphery and, and mm -hmm. uh, um, term, but uh, yeah, if we use labor aristocracy, I think it's been hollowed out now. I think, you know, American workers still enjoy some key advantages. Uh, and uh, to, to reiterate, I think the biggest of these is the U.S. dollar and the fact that uh, the U.S. government can basically, um, um, you know, push its pain out onto the world. Um, you know, why are we, you know, um, what is the worst, most regressive tax at all? It's inflation due to an oversupply, an oversupply of money. Uh, what do we have in the United States right now? We have this incredible regressive tax on, on workers because inflation is outpacing um, um, uh, wages and salaries, which were already in a period of relative decline. Um, but the, 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 the general trend, and, and everyone agrees that this is coming sooner or later, there's a lot of debate about how soon, is that the dollar is is going to end as the global supranational currency. You know, the, 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 the EU, uh, the euro was actually envisioned uh, as a competitor uh, to the dollar. And it, it did not manage to really um, to, to um, displace the dollar uh, right. or, or to, to, to push it back uh, enough. Um, but I think what you see with, with what China is doing now um, in terms of clearing accounts, uh, in terms of the digital yuan um, um, that, that increasingly countries are managing to do business without the dollar. And that's the trend. And sooner or later, um, the U.S. is going to lose that powerful tool to be able to externalize its, uh, its um, mismanagement um, uh, economic mismanagement at home uh, to cover up uh, the, 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 the exploitation of labor. 
um, and, um, uh, and and to deal, you know, with band-aid approaches to to crises. This this capacity is in decline, uh, serious decline, and so I, I, that's coming. Uh, I, I think it's I think we're already we're already seeing the effect of the end of that. Uh, the world is wise to it, and and mm-hmm. and by the way. China became China really drew a lot of lessons from how the U.S. handled 08. Um, mm. and you know it really redoubled uh, China's efforts to to find a solution to the dollar. Um, because as long as the U.S. was able to to you know maintain the dollar, uh, it would be able to perpetuate the fiction of. Of, of American power. Um, yeah, I, I could see the 2008 crisis waking them up. That I, I think that's a good argument. Well, what uh, what it really what they really what you really see after 08, and this is a separate topic, is um, the normalization of building uh, the, 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 in, in Chinese theory and practice uh, the acceptance and normalization of building what China calls uh, an effective regime of macro controls for managing the economy, which the United States now uh, attacks as, you know, this socialistic or communistic intervention in, in markets. But that's precisely what the U.S. does, but in a completely reactionary uh, way, um, as we see in 08 and then last year. Um, but the 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 to go back to your earlier point, um, the immediate danger is uh, is fascism, and you know you you have several leading leftist scholars who are concerned that fascism is the more likely um, um, next step in in. Um, in U.S. political development, um, and whether it's, you know, <laughs> a very clear-cut fascism, you know, someone like a, a Mussolini or a Hitler who's able to seize power and impose a certain, or whether it's just a growing uh, fascism in the hearts and minds of a certain majority um, that's able to, you know, impose its will. On, on the rest of the nation. Uh, uh, either way, um, this this is you know one of the more compelling dangers um, that that many people are concerned about. Um, in my in my perspective, I, it's a, it's a real concern, um, and we all might fall from it. Um, so I don't want to say, uh, don't worry about it. Uh, yeah. and I do, and I do want to say organize against it. Uh, however, from the long view of history and not the, the long durée, uh, exp- as expressed by Fernand Brodel, but, uh, but from the dialectical and historical and materialist view of history, um, uh, fascism is self-limiting. Mm. It is not, capable of progress oh right yeah because it's it's inherently reactionary and it tends to manifest when the capitalist state is 
um, either in decline or facing some serious issues. So uh, I, I could see that. Right. My, the, my, something that I wrote in a article recently and that some people liked, and so I, I'm patting myself on the back, forgive me, um, <laughs> is that uh, evil is self-limiting. Mm. And you and you look at everything that you know. For example, that that uh, Hitler did, uh, most of it was self-limiting. You know, um, you you basically go to war with yourself. You go to war with everyone else. What's the end game? You know, um, how does all that destruction lead to something better? Um, it doesn't. It it leads to complete destruction and. Uh, that's a simplistic uh, uh, expression of it, but but ultimately, uh, if you're not moving forward in a way that is moving other people forward, um, at moving the masses forward, then it's not sustainable. So, um, and whether we view that through the lens of climate change, um, which, by the way, uh, cannot um, cannot uh, accommodate. Climate, the, the need to deal with climate change could not accommodate fascism. Uh, <laughs> right. uh, fascism promotes ultimately conflict between nations, and um, that is uh, contrary to the international, the needed international response to climate change. So forth and so on. So uh, either, either we uh, move forward uh, socialistically uh, or we don't, I think. And, and I think that this is. Uh, Marx's uh, conclusion that the only way to solve, uh, the only logical way to solve the contradictions that we face, is to is to work together in a way that that uh, saves and preserves uh, as many people as possible. Um, and uh, if we're not doing that, then we're doomed. Um, yeah, yeah, and you know, it's kind of a scary road because it seems like when there's a potential for fascism or socialism i mean it isn't always this way but because both of them utilize the masses and utilize pop populist rhetoric um it seems like you could easily go down those two roads like in germany i mean they had a massive communist party right before um, fascism took over but look what happened um so yeah hopefully that doesn't lead that way but you know we'll have to see for sure um but I, I just want to say one last thing before we close out. I know you were talking about the the potential fall of the U.S. dollar. Um, that has been very interesting to me as well. Um, I will say to everybody that we released an episode last year, um, if you look back on our channel, that kind of talks about the U.S. dollar and um, the poten its potential for the future, or lack of potential maybe, we should say. Um, but, yeah, and I... Think we, um, I, I think we covered the Cultural Revolution really good. I'm glad we could get into some of the deeper philosophy and stuff um, as well. But I, I guess just before we close out of here, I don't know if you had any final comments to make or anything. Um, I guess, like, real quick, I'll just say um, that, yeah, I, I, I think your analysis, I, I like how you, you phrase the Cultural Revolution, at least your thesis, as you put it, you know, you're presenting a thesis that you um, have gained by using the dialectical materialist method. And a lot of times on YouTube, I feel like communists, when they make these videos, it they almost have this attitude of, okay, I researched this, and this is true. 
So I'm making an argument why all you out there should believe this too. Um, but from your argument, I'm not really hearing that as much. It, it does feel very academic in a good way that it's saying, look, this is what the conclusion is if we use this method and, you know, deal with the, the theses from there, you know, critique it from there and see if you think of something better. But um, so in that way, I guess I appreciate your analysis. Um, but yeah, did you have any final words that you wanted to give before you, you close this out here? Yeah, a few, a few, I guess a few points. And, you know, I can talk all day, so I'll, I'll try <laughs> not to do that. But uh, the, the first point is, um, um, you know, if we if we go back and we look at Mao and what he's saying about history and historical development and the, the way that he's trying to develop China, he's always looking at this history through the lens of dialectical and historical materialism. And as he's making policies, he's projecting dialectical and historical materialism. And as Marxist, right, this, this leads us to this provocative point where shouldn't we, shouldn't we from the dialectical and historical materialist position, we shouldn't overemphasize what one man says at one point in time, mm -hmm. right? Right. I mean, it's really contrary to, to what we think of in terms of dialectical. And I was, here's someone who says, uh, who, who, who privileges dialectical and historical materialism as a mode of analysis and in his policy making. And we could argue that the communists who come after him do the same thing. And yet, for whatever reason, as Marxists, we don't actually analyze that period of time from a dialectical and historical materialist position. In fact, we get sucked into the ego politics of, well, what did Mao say yeah. versus what did Deng say? Why don't we look at what they what what they actually did and and struggled and what came of what happened? And those set aside the personalities, set aside the romance, and focus on what actually happened. How did they actually move from being one of the most backward countries to the number two country in the world right now? How did they close the technology gap? A, a friend of mine, and I can't cite this study because it's, it's being published in the next week or so, so it's still embargoed. But they just did this um, massive study where they looked at um, uh, which countries in the world right now have technological independence versus mm -hmm. which ones are uh, dependent. And only three countries in the world right now have technological independence. Number one, the United States. Number two, South Korea. Number three, China. Okay. Mm. And this is a complete reverse, a complete material reversal, right? If you go back to the 1940s, even the 1950s, all the way up to the early 1960s, China is the, the, the biggest problem, right? Going all the way back to the, to the, to the opium wars, the biggest problem is the technology gap. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is what leaves China vulnerable to foreign aggression? Why is it that a small power like the UK can impose its will? Why is it that a small country like Japan can impose its, its will on China? Because they have this incredible advantage 
uh, in technology. And, and technology, I'm not going to get into a lecture on, but, but it's not just you have a superior gun, but you have a superior organization, you have superior capacities to, to communicate, to, to uh, assess information, so forth and so on. So that we've seen this complete material reversal. How did they actually do that? Okay. How did they actually struggle and survive class struggle at the international level since the late 1960s, which is what they have done? How is it that you know Xi Jinping has now reached a, a point in time where he says, we are now in a new era, okay? We are now in an era where we're no longer, and, and he's basically said this, I'm not quoting him verbatim, but uh, we're no longer just gonna do what the United States says. We're no longer going to allow the US to bully us. We're going to resist, okay? Now this has right. been read in the West and by the US in particular as China being aggressive and China says, no, no, we're resisting your aggression and right. you're reading that as aggression, right? The, yeah, like U.S. aggression has been so normalized, they're considered aggressive for daring to say, hey, how about we don't do that? Right. And I don't want to get into a longer analysis of yeah. of, of the role that uh, the Daoyu Islands or the South China Sea or you know, all these things play in, in this. But um, it, this leads me to um, uh, a point, and that is I don't think the Chinese system is a danger to the world. I don't think that you see all this, you know, Cold War rhetoric coming out of Washington that the Chinese communists want to rule the world, that they have a scheme to displace the United States and to, uh, to rule the world. And I think that this is, is so laughable from the Chinese communist perspective because the communist system, the Chinese communist system is not portable. It, yeah. it only works in China. It, and, and by the way, it does not even work as well as they want in China. Mm. There are natural limits to that system and they're never satisfied with even how well it works in China. And once you start going beyond China, it, it doesn't work at all. And there may be little cells or groups that, you know, but, but they, they pose no real risk or political um, uh, legitimacy or capacity outside of China. But uh, that said, uh, I, I advanced a thesis uh, earlier this year um, that, that China, that the Chinese political system is inherently crisis seeking, mm. All right? In other words, that in part, this is inspired by their, their still privileging of dialectics and focusing on what some people call the principal contradiction or the primary contradiction as it's translated. But this idea that, that you must run towards problems. Mm. Now, some problems you can't, fix, some problems you can't address, some problems are outside of your range and some are secondary, right? But this perpetual movement towards identifying problems and then, and including problems within the party itself, right? So how do we, how do we change? How do we solve antagonistic contradictions, whether it's the party organization with corruption or uh, state, uh, the, the, the state apparatus 
or uh, how we organize the military apparatus or how we organize uh, the industrial system. Um, how, how, I mean, if you look at the incredible advances made in China now uh, with, with what I think is fairly called a green revolution, uh, is China still producing uh, more CO2 than any other country? Yes. Uh, more per capita than the U.S.? No. More historically than the U.S.? No. Is it unfair that China uh, 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 is at the final stage of its, of its national development um, and it has to pay a disproportionate cost for the, the developing world having screwed up um, the global environment beforehand? Um, whatever, right? But the bottom line is you see this sort of progressive movement towards resolving crises and I don't see that happening um, in, in the West. But that creates this, this perception that China wants the crisis with the West, right? In other words, that, that, it, that, it's, that as the West is unable to resolve its problems, as it's unable to reform and move past you know, its labor aristocracy or the old privileges it enjoyed at the center, which have, which have uh, uh, been eroded, um, that the, the crisis is now the crisis of a rising China. And I, I don't, I really don't think the, the people in Beijing see it that way. Uh, I, in fact, I would argue uh, that, that um, China is still too isolationist and, and too, um, too uh, Chinese exceptional um, in their worldview um, that they need to be uh, even more positively engaged um, and taking an even stronger role in pushing back against uh, hegemony uh, than they already are. Um, but yeah. uh, I don't see them as an international threat, but I do see the West trying to mount uh, trying to portray them, particularly the United States, trying to portray them as an international threat and then mobilize against it, which is a threat uh, in and of itself. Right, right. Yeah, and, and that's very different. Um, you know, I, I think it's interesting because, last point, you said China's not trying to export its system. And I think that's very clear, especially if you look at their actions and or read their writings. Um, I do think it's interesting, though, because I read a book recently, The China Wave by Zhang Weiwei, and he talks in depth about that, how China doesn't want to export its system. But at the same time, he does talk about how the future problems that come that that are probably going to come in this century, um, you know, require certain methods of government that maybe the Chinese are beginning to perfect or beginning to test now um, and that we may see certain features of this in other governments that deal with large problems as the, as this century continues. Um, you know, he even mentions, I think like pandemics, you know, and this is written in uh, like last decade. Um, but, you know, I, I think that that's the main thing is that China is not aggressively pushing its system out to the world but it's almost but almost leading by example. I don't know if that's a poor way of phrasing it, um, but through its actions, you know, it's able to show the benefits of its system. Um, but I, I guess that's just kind of my analysis at the very least. You know, I wrote a piece that was published uh, uh, last week, I think, in Beijing Review 
Uh, no, it was published in uh, by CGTN uh, called "The Principles of Chinese Democracy," and <laughs> I was, you know, I was being uh, somewhat intentionally provocative. Sometimes I'm I'm a little polemical and a little less uh, academic, and I enjoy it, uh, but uh, more than I should. Uh, it's a Marxist tradition. <laughs> it's a, it's a, mm, I don't know. Um, <laughs> But uh, the, the, the thing is, uh, um, you know, if, if the party does not, and, and, we, and we know that by most assessments, popular support in China for the central government uh, varies somewhere between 70 uh, to up to the mid 80 percent range. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, critics would say, well, you know, and these are from Pew Global Research Polls. Uh, so critics would say, well, maybe they don't, it's not an accurate reflection. Mm, uh, that argument's not very strong. Or they say, well, it's because China, uh, the Chinese government is so effective at restricting information and propaganda. Uh, not really. <laughs> that, that's not really the case. Uh, I, I, in fact, I find that, that, um, that most Chinese that I speak with, you know, assuming that uh, most Chinese uh, are like a, a lot of other people in the world, they don't really care that much about politics at all. They're they're thinking about uh, more immediate concerns, and they would rather not think about politics. Um, but uh, what I'm constantly surprised about is how informed a lot of people really are. Mm. Um, and at the same time, how this is, you know, you, all, you have to say this in today's age, how less misinformed mm. a lot of people are. It's important. Right. Because we have a lot of people who are misinformed in, in this country right now because of fake news and, and deliberate attempts to, to spread lies and to, uh, um, you know, promote alternate realities. Um, um, but, um, but you don't, it, what's interesting is that you see, you see a, a, a more critical engagement of news and information in China because people know that they're dealing with a system that might all might not always tell them um, the truth, and as a result, they actively seek other sources of information mm. to to create a, a more critical perspective. I don't think that happens as much here because I don't think people widely understand. Uh, I don't think there's a broad perception of how much censorship and and spin takes place uh, in universities, <laughs> in corporations, in the U.S. government, um, state government, uh, so forth and so on. I, I think that's actually a very important point because I'm just kind of thinking about myself when I was getting into, when I was becoming sympathetic to China, um, I started watching CGTN and some of their news agencies because of that reason that you just gave. I, I was like, Okay, there has to be, I know that my government and it, my media is lying to me in some way, shape or form, not totally sure where. So I'm just going to look at other 
media from other countries and, you know, just kind of compare and contrast. Um, but as you said, I don't think that, that that is probably a very small percentage of Americans who who go out of their way to do that kind of thing. Um, so I, I think that's very interesting that you're saying in China, um, because at least I mean, OK, so their their government. Yeah, they understand it could be not telling them the entire story or all the facts, but their government is somewhat honest that there is a if we want to call it a firewall or something of this sort, where ours, it's a little more. Yeah, we have freedom of speech, but it's very sinister and um, kind of behind the scenes as far as how they control, like the information or, and they won't, you know, you know, the 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 the, the point here that that's that one has to come back to is that um, the the party in China um, wants to have a monopoly on power mm -hmm. without a doubt. Okay, there's no ambiguity about this. Yeah. Um, but they understand that in order to maintain that monopoly, they have to deliver results. Mm -hmm. Which means they have to take responsibility for problems. Yeah, which, it's a big which, part of leadership. Which means that what they do better work and better correspond to reality, right? In other words, if I'm telling you that I'm taking care of all these problems, but you're actually hungry or suffering from disease or floods or whatever, um, you're not going to believe me and you're going to turn against me. Right. And um, uh, China is is one of the few um, uh, party state systems, single party state systems that has been able to. Uh, radically adapt itself to meet new crises. And this is one of the reasons I, I, I theorize that it's crisis seeking. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that it, you know, it had to, if you look at the early version of the party that was influenced by Moscow, it had to radically change itself to save itself. It was being destroyed. It was almost destroyed in 27 and 28. And then again with the encirclement campaigns with from the Guomindang. And it had to take a radical, it radically adapted itself with Mao Zedong uh, during the long march and in the Anand period. And then, you know, we have these new adaptations that follow um, that, you know, so hard for certain people to to deal with because they want to attach themselves romantically or, you know, uh, pathologically. They have sort of an identity construction that says, okay, I'm a Maoist. And that means, you know, I hate capitalism and uh, and I hate Deng Xiaoping and yada yada um, but look at look at what China did they they, they raised 700 people out of poverty right 700 they, million they, yeah yeah 700, 700 million people out of out of poverty they that something like 70 percent of the people who've been removed from poverty glo globally in the last 40 years were Chinese people okay mm-hmm and uh, you know critics are trying to say well that's because they were so backward that they had a lot well mm -hmm. Uh, compare China's progress with that of India. Both countries, yeah, uh, you know, start off at relatively the same period of time. And um, um, how's that? How's that working out in India? Um, um, That's in the fact, best point. Yeah, because uh, development doesn't just happen. As right wing people like to argue against us, they seem to have that perception. Like development just happens if you're a poor country, which 
is just mind-boggling to me because that's one of the biggest things that I want to see happen in the future is these countries develop. It doesn't just happen. Right. And single-party states have advantages and disadvantages. And um, what you said to initiate this com this part of the conversation is that, you know, increasingly people might be coming to the conclusion that there's something to the Chinese system. I think that this is a misguided conversation. Mm. I don't think that anyone in the United States should be looking <laughs> to the Chinese example and saying, what can we learn from the Chinese system? And, you know, how can we replicate that type of party or authoritarian system here to solve our problems? Uh, nor do I think that we have to necessarily conclude that that something like that is necessary because as we said earlier, in all likelihood, uh, that would take a, a manifest as a form of fascism. Mm -hmm. um, rather, the, the Chinese position is that organically, you have to find solutions to your problems that fit your culture, your stage of development, your all of these factors, right? Um, Yes. And I, I, sorry, just to interrupt, like, I, I get what you mean 100%. Like, we don't want to copy the Chinese system. If anything, I think that should be the one takeaway. If we're going to, if we're going to copy anything from them, it's not to copy, if that makes sense. Because we talked about how the, the troubles they had when they were using the Soviet style system, and they had to find their own way. So like, if, if we can learn anything in the West, I guess, it's that we have to do it our own way as they did. Right. But but the other thing is, you know, I don't think we have to valorize mm -hmm. authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. You know, um, in, in my heart of hearts, I'm I'm really closer to um, the Gramsci Luxembourg uh, school of of bottom up uh, Marxist democracy. And, um, um, you know, that's. that is an idealization that's never been realized um, and may never be realized. But uh, I would hate to start with the idea that we need to build, you know, um, a top-down authoritarian system as the norm, even mm -hmm. if it was, you know, acculturated to the American experience. Um, yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. I, I yeah. can see that. Um, yeah. I, like I said, I think that, covered a lot i think we did hit like a lot of important points in there though even though we got derailed I, I i like how we tend to still cover important stuff um but yeah so i mean i think that covers it i i'm fine with closing out there unless you had anything to add no but, I, i've appreciated the chance to talk I, I i hope i didn't talk too much and um you know if we have future opportunities to chat or discuss other things then Let's consider them, or if there are other four that you know of that uh, might be interested in hearing me speak, uh, let me know, or your listeners can can communicate this in some way. Um, um, I'm on LinkedIn, and um, uh, uh, because this still works in Asia, and um, if anyone wants to connect with me in LinkedIn uh, uh, or dialogue with me in LinkedIn, uh, they can find me by my full name, Joseph. J-O-S-E-F Gregory Mahoney, M-A-H-O-N-E-Y. And um, um, 
I uh, tend to ignore trolls, uh, but uh, if someone is advancing a, a reasonable argument or conversation uh, uh, for or against something that I've raised, then um, I'm happy to to respond. Awesome. Yeah, I, I would definitely love to see if some other channels reached out to you in the future um, and got you on some of their shows as well. That, that would be amazing. I might send around a few feelers um, that that might be able to get that going. But um, but yeah, we totally appreciate it. Um, yeah, I'd love to do this in the future. Like you said, pop, maybe another topic of, you know, diving into a different topic would be cool. Um, but yeah, so with that, we're going to close out this little series right here. So thanks everybody who's been listening and we will catch you later. All right. Y'all take care. Mm -hmm. All right. And so that is going to be it for now of our series of interviews with professor Mahoney on the great leap forward and cultural revolution. And I'll finish this out by saying that you can listen to the crimson flag on any major platform that hosts podcasts. And if you wish to support the show, you can check out our Patreon link, which is going to be in the description. So thanks everybody for listening and we'll see you later. All right, thanks.